Hello and welcome back to Rocket Pod, the podcast on a mission to find some of the most amazing visionaries from all across the world, deconstruct their stories and share these insights with you at home. And our guest on today's show is the one and only Graham Hobson, who is the founder of Photobox. Now, I'm sure many of you know exactly what Photobox is, so I'm just going to leave it there. Let's get this episode going. Enjoy. Just really brief, briefly, I've known Graham for a few years uh, and I met him at a at a client that I was consulting for. Uh, and uh, Graham is the epitome of an entrepreneur that has taken a concept, an idea uh, from a gap in the market that he observed and turned it into a multi-million pound business with a, you know, a few hundred million pound exit at the end. But I think t- today it's really, a, we're really going to be digging into uh, how Graham, um, I guess, runs his life, um, some of his experiences into entrepreneurship. Uh, and I think one thing that has attracted me to Graham is that he's a very patient individual. Um, he likes to deconstruct things and make sense of things. Uh, so he, you know, with his engineering background, he has that um, inquisitive cur- curiosity. Um, but he's also a very good listener and uh, very wise. And I think a lot of this wisdom has has really come about from you know these hardcore experiences you know forging um a business from from nothing um and uh yeah it's really great to have you on board so graham just to kind of dive in uh what uh, what gets you up in the morning um well that's a good question that can have many answers i, I actually uh what gets me up in the morning now is the natural rhythm of eight hours sleep which is a huge luxury because um for 17 years of photo box i was getting up at six in the morning uh or sometimes four in the morning if i was catching a Eurostar. and uh but i'd go to the gym and then i'd go into london and and do my work in the office um and i had some time off uh, just over a year ago, and I read the book Why uh, Why We Sleep, and it was just such a revelation that you know, like I was doing potentially huge damage or, or you know, not optimizing my health by cutting short my sleep every night. And um, so now I I get eight hours, and uh, I feel very good for it. <laughs> so that's what gets me up in the morning. In fact, I was actually going to ask you uh, later on in the episode, you know, if you had one bit of advice. Uh, for the audience, what would that be, uh, or what, or what, if there was one habit that uh, you would incorporate into, it, they should incorporate into their lives, and would sleep be high up on the list? Uh, probably, I'll try and come up with something else by the end of <laughs> by the end of the hour. <laughs> Can you just set the scene for us and go back and tell us a bit about your upbringing, what your education, early education was like, and up leading up to that idea, to that first idea for Photobox. Just take us back to just before you started. Okay, I'll try and be brief. You tell me if you want more detail. <laughs> uh, so I had a kind of normal, happy, middle-class upbringing in a suburb of London, uh, northwest London. Um, I, I was an only child. I had uh, two... Uh, my parents were kind of entrepreneurial. My dad was an estate agent but knew how to grow the business into a property management company. But, you know, small scale, small, small businessman. And my mum worked with him in the business. Um, you know, we, we had a, a nice lifestyle. It wasn't super rich. We had a nice three-bedroom house and we went on holidays. But uh, it was normal upbringing. Um, but uh, if I look back, there were kind of think quirks in my personality that I can now see very clearly. I, maybe being an only child, I didn't, I didn't feel super socialized. And I, I think it took me well into my 20s before I learned <laughs> decent social skills. Uh, and uh, I, I also kind of hated group activities. I didn't really like school, junior school or senior school, and didn't like Cubs and Scouts and any kind of organized activity. And, and when I look back, I was, you know, kind of a square peg in a round hole. And, um, and I've spoken to people who've pursued entrepreneurial paths um, and they recount similar things you know that I think there's this essence of not fitting in that makes you look for new solutions um, so that was my upbringing um, I got a, a computer when I was about 13 years old and that was my passion you know learning to code um, 
And by the time I was about 15, I was writing some commercial software and selling it and, and effectively being a consultant for small businesses that needed some tech. Um, and went off to, I didn't feel I was very academic. I left school at 16, um, but then realized I was a bit drifting around. So I, I went back and did A-levels at a technical college and just scraped through two really appalling A-levels. Uh, and then effectively fell into um, a, a computer science degree, but again, not very enthusiastic about it. Um, I, I kind of learned a great deal about hacking because <laughs> it was the rise of modems and internet communications at the time. Um, and uh, But I, I, I left there and um, I remember I had two, two job offers when I left college. One was to go and work for a, a tech reseller in High Wycombe. And the other offer was to work for the London Stock Exchange. And I can't remember why, but somehow I favored the High Wycombe job. And my dad said, you're absolutely crazy. Go and work for the London Stock Exchange. Um, and, and I did. And that was a, um, a kind of great path of learning and solid companies to work for. I worked for LSE for two years. I worked for... Bearing securities for a couple of years, the the English bank that went bust because of a rogue trader who I happened to sit opposite. Um, then I went on with a, with a bunch of traders from there to UBS for seven years, and uh, Merrill Lynch for two years, and that took me through to my mid thirties, which, for various reasons, was an ideal jumping off point from a conventional career into something different. In fact, one of my questions. That's interesting. Thank you, Graham, for summarising that. Um, one of my questions was um, how you bridge the chasm or transition from, you know, that corporate job to um, to founding Photobox, um, and whether you did it cold turkey or whether you had any safety net before you made the jump. Because obviously, early thirties, it sounds like you were in the full swing of life. Um, I'm not sure whether you had a family at that point, but it sounds like you were, you know, you had a lot going on um, and a great job. So, can you comment about the transition? I did, I, and I was. Because I was, you know, working in technology for banks, it was really well paid. And I guess I was lucky enough to have accumulated some savings and a kind of solid foundation. But it was a massive leap in the dark. And I, I think it was, again, kind of looking back, I, I think mid-30s is that reflection point. You know, like, am I going to do this same thing for the next 15 years? Am I going to be a 50-something on the tube going into my corporate job? Um, there, were, there were a lot of things. There was... Um, a general air of kind of boredom that I've been doing the same thing since I was 21. Uh, I did have some confidence, some experience, some savings, you know, all the kind of things that I would need to lean on if I was going to do my own thing. Um, there were a couple of really stupid reasons. One was IR35, which was a kind of tax change at the time, which sought to penalize um, technology contractors. And I thought that was particularly unfair. I'm now a great fan of tax. I think tax is a very positive thing, but often reframed, um, framed badly. But, uh, but at the time there, and, and the worst thing of all, Merrill Lynch were planning to scrap the dress down code and, and bring back suits. <laughs> so I thought, right, I'm out of here. And, um, but, but I guess the real thing was uh, I had two young children at the time. I was taking lots of photos of them going off to boots every couple of weeks with a roll of film. And realizing that uh, most of the pictures that came back just weren't great, great quality. And I wanted to have <clears throat> a bit more choice about what I printed um, and just bought a digital camera and then found there was absolutely nowhere to get prints, not online, not on the high street. The only option was an inkjet printer. And I'm sure millennials are too young to remember the pain of those, but it just, you know, wasn't a good option. And I thought this can't, can't be that difficult, right? I'm Baby, whiteboard, three things. It's a website. It's an order management system. And I'd built lots of those for, for banks. Um, and it's uh, some kind of print solution. And, and, and if you think that's complicated, every chemist in the country had a, a photo printer at the back of the store at that time. So, you know, this is clearly not that difficult. And so I ended up writing a business plan on the tube every morning on my laptop. Um, and after a couple of weeks, it looked kind of reasonable. And I started to talk to people and said, hey, I'm thinking of doing this thing on the internet. And a lot of my kind of trading buddies said, <laughs> yeah, I'm in, you know, and uh, and it was just one of those times. Uh, I mean, looking back, it was a massive bubble, right? At the end of 99, which is when this was, 
everybody and their dog was, you know, starting an internet business. And, you know, Cisco was uh, this massive company that had gone from nowhere and people had become millionaires trading in it. And there was this gold rush towards internet businesses. So, um, you know, it was easy to find people that were willing to back me. And um, I kind of found myself at the end of 99 at this go, no go decision. And uh, yeah, there was still a lot of drama after that point. But uh, that that's what got me to the point where I was ready to start my own business. So when you first had the idea, did you draw it on a notepad or a napkin? Or was there any like, what was the first like from your from your from the idea or for the frustration that you were having trying to get your pictures printed to actually the first sketch of the business plan, what did it look like? I I can't recall uh, what stationary <laughs> choices I made at the time, but I do remember I went for breakfast, a very posh breakfast in uh, Harvey Nichols. They had a cafe at the top of the fifth floor of the store. And I went there on a Saturday morning with my wife in October 99. And I said to her, I've got this business idea and, uh, you know, like, I think it would be really cool to make a business that prints people's photos. And she said, oh, okay, that's interesting. And, you know, what have you done? And I sort of written a plan and we talked about it. And she said, well, it sounds great. You know, like, <laughs> don't give up your day job kind of thing. And I said, no, 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 I'd have to give up my day job. And I remember her being very concerned. Um, but that night we were going to dinner with one of her cousins in Fulham and her cousin's boyfriend. And it, it turned out that her cousin's boyfriend, who I thought was a kind of pub accountant, was a, a small scale VC with a bit of listed company experience. And he and he said, oh, that sounds cool. Let's have lunch and tell me about it. And then he said, well, I'll be your CFO and I'll help you raise the money. And, um, you know, just give me a little bit of the equity and we'll take it from there. And And that turned out to be one of many uh, examples of serendipity that kind of really powered the business forward. Fantastic. So that, that posh breakfast, was that, uh, were you planning on, <laughs> on dropping this, this idea to your wife? No, or it no, just, no it just came up. It just came up. Good answer. Graham. Um, so I, I listened to another uh, interview you had and could you, I've been interested to understand the first five years of, of your journey with Photobox, the first day of launch, and then the first 18 months and then that five would just get, what was that experience like? Because I do know um, that it was quite a challenging time and you, well, the resilience kept you going and it was a great success, but can you just tell us about that first five years? Yeah, sure. So first of all, one really key point is that I, um, I, I really felt I needed a co-founder. Um, I wouldn't have had the guts to do it alone. And I also recognized that, I thought I brought a lot to the table, but I certainly didn't bring the whole package needed to uh, to to make a business succeed. And so I managed to rope in a friend and a guy who'd been my line manager at UBS for years uh, called Mark Chapman. And I remember him being really reluctant, uh, but eventually he agreed to join. And uh, we 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 get along well. We we have a lot of trust between us, but we're very very different people. And so I was all over the place. I was kind of bouncing around high energy, you know, product, technology, business development, yeah, sales. And he was like calm, steady, corporate um, process, hiring people. Yeah. So, um, and it meant that we kind of rowed a bit. And he, I remember him calling me immature many times, but, uh, but it worked. And, and I, uh, it, it's another story, but he, about three months in, he said, oh, I don't think this is for me. And I thought, oh, my God, I've given you massive amounts of equity. And what am I going to do if you leave? And, you know, for various reasons. But he ended up staying for 12 years. But um, so every, everything I tell you about the first five years, it was the two of us together most of that time. I mean, all of that time. But we had a few other people, but it was mostly the two of us. Um, it was we had a very rapid startup phase. We we kind of started in earnest on the 1st of January. Um, we uh, found a premises by the end of January, which was a kind of ramshackle small building in small office space in um, Clerkenwell. Actually, it was kind of a converted garage, uh, with about 1,600 square feet. Um, I hired, I, one thing I was determined to do was not to build the tech myself because I thought I'd get very distracted 
by that, even though I was a technologist. So I hired two guys called Chris, one Chris to build the website, one Chris to build the internal workflow system. Um, I remember I gave them a very kind of waterfall spec of what I needed. And um, uh, the website was built in six weeks. Um, very ropey it was too, but it did work. And we launched live on the 11th of May that year. And I remember we had £2.80 as our first day's revenue, which we celebrated. And then the next few days were zero. Uh, but it was kind of very steady growth. Um, uh, so what to say about it? It was Everything was done on a shoestring. We had raised about half a million quid, a bit less than half a million quid. But we burnt through it very quickly because um, in, in those days, there was no... AWS, uh, you know, there was no, you know, hardware was really expensive. We bought, I remember one of the things we had to buy was this kind of storage array to store the customer's photos. And it was, um, it was 64 <laughs> gigs <laughs> and it took two men to lift it and it cost us 10 grand, right? So uh, and we had to buy all the servers, we had to buy racks, we had to buy UPS, all this stuff. Um, and we had to buy the printer for cash because we talked to Fuji and Kodak and Agfa. Kodak and Agfa had laughed us out of their office saying, this is ridiculous, you guys know nothing. Uh, Fuji still laughed, but kind of kept listening and eventually said, yes, we'll sell you a printer, but you have to pay cash for it because we don't trust you any line of credit. So we had to pay 140 grand for the printer. So, you know, we'd raised 480, but we, we burnt through half of it in no time at all. And that didn't leave much runway. So everything was done on a shoestring. Um, I think we hired one member of staff uh, right at the beginning, but he didn't stick around long. So it was mostly just the two of us. Um, and yeah, very, very slow start. The other thing, of course, that didn't, didn't exist in 2000 was effective ways to market an internet company online. Uh, there were banner ads that didn't work then, don't work now. There was no social media advertising, no Google AdWords. There was no Google in year 2000, for people who don't know that. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, so, uh, you know, we were like printing flyers and I was sponsoring four balls at my dad's golf club and things like that. It just wasn't working. Uh, and our biggest problem was just lack of, lack of customers and visitors. Um, to kind of speed through the first five years, we, we ended up running it as a small business. It was growing all the time. Um, it took us more than 18 months to get to our first thousand pounds day. Um, and uh, by the time we got to 2005, I realized that I was out of money. I, you know, I was paying myself a third of the salary I would have got in my old job. Um, everything was going into the business. And whilst the numbers were looking better, it wasn't it wasn't what I planned. I didn't intend to be running a small business for years. So I do remember having a conversation with Mark and saying, we've either got to grow this business, you know, raise money, grow into Europe or give up because I didn't, you know, I'm not going to do this for another five years. Um, and, and during that time, it was a very lean period. You know, I, I had a third son um, in early 2002. So I had three young kids um, I'd sold my car, I'd remortgaged the house, uh, we'd given up taking holidays. I remember, and I, I probably said this before somewhere else, but the, the one thing I remember that was really too much of a luxury was like a decent coffee in the mornings, you know, a, a two, two pound 50 coffee every day, just too much. And I remember taking the kids to the park at the weekend and they'd say, can we go and get a hot chocolate? And I'm like, no, can't, you know, 20 quid in a cafe, no. So that was, that was kind of, to me, I know people have it a lot worse than that, but um, it felt very clean and, uh, and it did make me think maybe I've taken the wrong path here. So <clears throat> just listening to that, uh, that story of yeah, those, those first five years, um, how would you, so resilience, obviously, I mean, there's this topic resilience keeps coming up and um, what's your, what, what does resilience mean to you? Um, I know that, uh, you know, you're you currently invest in other businesses as a as an angel, or you you have been an angel investor in the past. I don't know whether you're uh, yeah. active now. Um, but what um, 
yeah, what does that resilience mean to you? Uh, and what and um, yeah, what do you what does it mean to you? So I, yeah, I've come to reflect the two most important qualities for an entrepreneur are resilience and adaptability. Um, the resilience because it's it's bruising. There, there's a constant stream of, uh, well, maybe good things, but there are bad things as well that happen. There are ups and downs, and you have to you have to withstand those. And adaptability because. Um, you, you have to constantly reinvent yourself uh, in, in the light of new information and, and the way you behave and the way your vision of the company is, is set. You, none of these things are fixed. Um, and, and so I, I realized, you know, I didn't go out, I didn't set out saying I'm going to be resilient and adaptable at the beginning of all of this, but I realized that I, I kind of inherently was and, and those were the only things that allowed me to get through it. I, I mean, one one thing I want to be really clear on, though, is that uh, successful entrepreneurship is n- is never guaranteed, and there's no playbook to get there. You can't start out on the journey and guarantee that you're going to get to success. In fact, um, the people who do succeed, it's a process of natural selection. They just happen to have retrospectively made the right decisions that you know worked, uh, but uh you can't you can't guarantee and somebody could take my decisions and replay them and it wouldn't come out the same um so first of all let's not all pat ourselves on the back and say we're brilliant because we won uh it, it, you know it's it doesn't work like that but you do realize that there were times when it was really tough and you were really low and you really felt like you had no solution and somehow you woke up the next morning and went back in and said right how are we going to solve this um, and, and that's what powers people through. I'd like to take this moment to introduce to you our sponsor, Flexi, the must-have app to track and manage your subscriptions in one place. So most of us have multiple subscriptions nowadays for things like streaming services, gym memberships and food deliveries. These are great and take the hassle out of buying everyday products that we consume regularly, but it can be hard to keep track of them. That's where Flexi comes in handy, using super secure technology to connect your accounts to see all your subscriptions in a single dashboard, putting you in control of your spending. And what's more, Flexi's subscription marketplace allows you to discover new products you may love, or easy to pause, resume, or cancel in a swipe or two. So give Flexi a try, it's free to download from the App Store, or check out their website at www.flexiapp.uk, that's F-L-E-X-Y app. UK. Back to the podcast. Yeah, and actually, your comment about the the small business piece. Obviously, you were, you know, from your very first uh, two pound seventy sale or two pound eighty sale, uh, you saw incremental growth. Um, and like you said, it, you know, in eighteen months, you were hitting a thousand pounds a day. You know, in some people's view, that that would be a success. Um, and then. You know, you carried on a few years, and you realised that it wasn't. You know, the business wasn't meeting your needs. So, would, would you say that you you came to a point where you just suddenly realised that actually this wasn't working for you, and you needed to do something? Um, and can you comment about the yeah the the focus on this growth because clearly you were growing, you know, every month, uh, but it wasn't actually fulfilling what you needed to do as a business. Um, can you comment about that? Yeah. Yeah, so I uh, I was very metrics driven even then. So I had this Excel spreadsheet that every day had, you know, number of visitors, number of new registrations, number of orders, revenue, you know, all, all these all this stuff. And I was tracking it and looking at the trends. And um, I we were doing everything right. We just weren't adding enough rocket fuel, you know, to the to the model. Um, I when I look back. Um, one of the issues was somehow I got this perception that VCs were evil and that we shouldn't take money from VCs because um, they were going to control our business and make our lives very stressful. And, um, and, and what I realized was Mark and I were both very conservative with a small C. We were both very risk averse and we were always trying to operate, you know, within positive cash flow and make decisions that would pay back quickly. And in fact, that 
that literally made a kind of two-year plan stretch over five years. <laughs> and if we had, um, yeah, there was there was a big um, bubble that burst in the middle of all of this, and there, there was you know, the, in May 2000, the Nasdaq collapsed, and no B2C businesses were getting funded, and uh, our investors all got very panicky. And, and, and there were there were reasons why we had to be conservative, but we should have come out of that cycle a year later. Um, you know, feeling confident and going out and taking more risk. Uh, and if we had, we would have raised money, we would have spent more on marketing, we would have accelerated some of our programs and and got there much quicker. Um, so that's a regret. Uh, but, you know, we got there in the end, we just it just cost us a bit of time. Okay, now that's really helpful. Because I, I think what I was thinking in my mind too, and I think um, the pandemic has has caused a lot of people to reflect and, and some, you know, in some cases hit rock bottom, whether they lose their job or their business folds or whatever it is. Um, so this theme of, um, you know, it's, you reach a point, it's, it's that breaking point or that, um, that, that moment of like, you know, shit, I've got to, got to do something, got to change things up. Um, and I guess everyone's capacity or lid and motivations is different. So that's, you know, one reason I was just curious about, um, that particular thing. Um, what's the hardest hmm. decision you've ever made? Um, gosh, uh, I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm, I feel pretty good these days. I don't have to make really hard decisions. Um, I mean, there, there've been a number of, over the years, I think that dealing with my family and asking them to kind of, uh, to trust me and to sacrifice was hard at the beginning. There've obviously been hard decisions. I, about firing people and and realizing that people aren't a good fit um, and by the way i was a terrible person man people manager and i think it took me about six years before i fired anybody in the business and even then they fired themselves i was doing such a bad job of it uh but um i i just yeah i think it's um it's not, it's not an answer to your question, but one of the things that I've always struggled with is the kind of code red situations in the business. There are times when particularly being responsible for the technology, um, everything would go wrong. Uh, and particularly in more recent years, you know, like it might be the busiest sales day of December and we're selling in 19 countries and we, you know, we would be doing several thousand orders an hour and the website goes <laughs> down and, it's my fault, right? <laughs> and, and what am I going to do? And, um, I, and I think your natural instinct is to have a panic attack and, and to lie on the floor and, and, and hope that it all goes away. But you're, you're the guy that has to lead everybody, give them confidence. And, and, um, and, and actually, I've, I've learned how to deal with those situations. The first thing you do is to recognize, to step back in your mind and look at what's going on and to recognize that what's going on means nothing in the context of your life or the universe, right? Who cares? An e-commerce site is down. Nobody died, right? If that's, that's the first thing. And um, you, you have to just recognize that this, is, uh, this raging panic in your head is, is, uh, is a construct and it, you can ignore it. So that, that, that defeats the, the panic, which... Um, you have to get away from. And the second thing is you just say, right, what would make this situation better? There's always one piece of information that unlocks the source of the problem, right? That enables you to move forward. And the key is that you and your team have to go and find that piece of information as quickly as possible. So you, you just, you direct people, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do to analyze it, to fix it, whatever. And I've been in, I'd love to say that I've only had one or two things like that, but I've had you know, a constant stream of code reds over the years. And my wife will tell you, we've been on holiday, we've been up mountains, we've been, you know, on a boat and the phone's gone and, you know, the rest of the holiday, I'm just gone. Uh, it's happened way too much. Um, we had one, one period where uh, four major things happened across Europe at the same time and I didn't get any sleep for 48 hours, which is definitely the worst code red I've had. But... Um, yeah, you have to summon all your strength, step back from the problem and, and just solve it. That's, that's really interesting. Um, you comment about, you know, no one died. Uh, it, and also recognizing the incremental things that will make things better because, and I, I guess um, even going through those code reds, that, that, that 
builds resilience. Uh, you know, you, it's almost. Uh, do you have anything to add to that, Harry? Any anything going on in your? Uh... Yeah. I guess in terms of the code red, so I, th- I think that's an interesting point about, like you said, when the e-commerce site goes down, it isn't the end, of, sort of isn't the end of the world, sort of thing. But I guess when you do run your own business and you're an entrepreneur, there's a huge amount of pressure that you put on yourself to do everything. You've got everything you're managing. What experience? Because, like you mentioned, you didn't sleep forty hours. What experience have you had of those effects of COVID and how have you? Because I myself, I know I put a lot of pressure on myself when there's stuff that he's doing. But how? What are the effects? you found and how have you managed those so i yeah i mean it took me a long time to figure it out um i so kind of the worst the worst the low point for me was um around 2007 i think so in 2006 um we kind of entered the next phase of the business we'd uh we'd we'd formed this plan to expand across europe to raise money um, and whilst our original plan didn't work out quite as we'd expected, um, we did have a plan B and we followed that. And the plan B was merging with a French company and going and raising money from Highland and, and Index Ventures. And we did that. We put the two companies together and suddenly we were on this, you know, kind of rocket ship because we had, uh, I, I'd inherited six different websites across Europe, uh, including my own, including two of my own from the UK side. Um, I'd uh, decided to give up the CEO role and we hired somebody who actually knew how to do it, which was great, but also terrifying because I now had this uh, amazing command and control Harvard MBA telling me what to do every day, which was uh, very stressful, but, you know, I'd asked for it. So, uh, and we... I'd naively said to the board, um, right, got these six websites, you know, in this country, we're only doing prints in this country, we're doing, you know, no sharing or whatever. Let let me build one website across Europe that does everything in all languages. And I said, you know, give me nine months and a team of 12 people, I'll get it done. And of course, you know, (laughs) never going to happen. Didn't use agile, just fantasy planning. Um, and and so this this nine month project was actually took two years, and even after two years, the website was so dog slow that you know it really hammered. It probably took thirty percent out of our conversion ratio uh, for about six months until we managed to find ways to speed it up. But halfway through that project, I just I I, I was in Paris at a really stressful meeting with a new product team we'd hired. Who, who were very, you know, I'm going to write you a hundred page spec of what I want, which was like a million miles away from what I was capable of delivering. And I, I got super stressed that day. And I remember coming back on the train, I got home and I just, I felt like I was going to have a heart attack. I literally was palpitations. And, and this period of what I now know were panic attacks went on for several weeks. And, and at one point I checked myself into hospital and said, there's something not right here. Um, and I just realized it was cumulative stress. It was not sleeping. It was not looking after myself um, and, and just being mentally in the wrong place. And it took me uh, almost like a complete reset to say, okay, how am I going to solve this? And it, it, the combination was better diet, better sleep. Um, I, I started exercising for the first time in years. I, I, you know, I, I run a lot now, but at the time I wasn't running, I was swimming and um, and, and, and it just took a while to get myself back in shape. And then I felt much more able to cope with the period ahead. And I, I really wanted to quit. I think I went to the CEO and said, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm got to go. And he convinced me to stay and work the problems, which is, you know, good, good advice. Um, and, uh, so it, it took me a while to get to the point where I knew how to control my emotions and state of mind and step back. Interestingly, in the last year, I, you know, I've had a lot more time. Everybody has, I suppose. But before lockdown, I decided I'm going to try a bunch of new experiences, um, personal experiences, work experiences. So two of the things I tried were yoga and um, meditation for the first time ever. And, and I've been listening to this course on calm about meditation. And, and it teaches you this idea of, you know, 
you are not your thoughts. You, you, your thoughts happen to you, but you can step back from them and observe them happening and, and be much more rational about them, the way you react to things. And I thought, yeah, I've been, I kind of figured that out, but I couldn't articulate why it was. So, um, so if anybody wants, you know, to kind of get more control, then obviously try a bit of meditation, see if it works for you. Mm. It doesn't work for everybody, but uh, that, that helps me uh, control things as well. Interesting. So I guess if you looked back um, at the early stage of your journey, if you'd implemented um, exercise routines and a bit of meditation, do you think that would have would helped control the stress earlier on? Absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing I didn't do enough of for sure, is just talking to other people. I was like too much, you know, locked in this private world of pain and also, you know, in the office, just toiling away. And and I think it took me a few years to get out and start talking to people because uh, I always felt I didn't have the time. And what I, what I learned is when you start, when somebody asks you for advice and you really listen to them and you consider and you give them advice, you actually go back to the office thinking, I know how to solve that problem now. <laughs> you know, listening to other people's problems definitely puts your own in perspective and, and puts you in this, um, I think it's two things. It puts you into this problem-solving mindset, but also it, it just takes you out of your own problems and gives you a bit of mental space to think about them. So once I, start, once I discovered that, I was coaching people left, right, and center because <laughs> it actually helped me myself and uh kind of felt like it unlocked a lot of things that i needed to deal with that's really interesting i, I guess it's uh giving is giving is receiving in a in a weird way and i, th I think uh, I, I can't remember the endorphins that are released but i think even if you i'm just thinking if you see someone give someone something whether it's a you know come on the street or you know or if you experience witness um some kindness, uh, whether it's wisdom or whatever it is, then it, you know, the, the some, some whether it's oxytocin, but it's a certain chemicals released in your brain as well. So I wonder whether that those different chemicals is you know flowing around yeah. kind of help you come up with better ideas. I, I don't I don't know, but it's uh... yeah, I, and I'm a big believer in karma, and I think karma has a lot to do with entrepreneurship because I, I mentioned it earlier, but there's a huge amount of serendipity in, in entrepreneurship. Um, I, I often say that uh, entrepreneurship is about making connections. In fact, the, the word means making connections, right? Uh, uh, entre, between, and preneur, someone who takes. Um, someone who takes something from one place and, and deploys it somewhere else. And, um, and often those connections could be people. I met, I met this guy three years ago. I now have this issue that's the perfect person to talk to or this thing oh somebody showed me this cool feature and somebody else showed me a different feature what what would it be like if those two things were mixed together um so i think entrepreneurs carry things between space and time and and connect them together and uh those connections are sometimes formed well often formed by chance and you have to you have to have lots of random conversations in order to encourage that serendipity and uh, karma is the, the, the willingness to give something away for free and just, you know, give it to the world and <laughs> see what happens. And often those things come back to you in a very positive way. Yeah. And I guess sometimes they can come back from a completely different channel, you know, so it's almost like this, yeah. you don't give to receive. I know some people do, but you, I guess the idea is you, 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 you give, you're generous with your time. Um, but knowing that actually, like you said, the serendipity and, um, it kind of what goes around comes around, which is, I, I believe in that too. I think it's a really nice, it's a nice outlook actually. Is it all right if I jump in with a question? Okay. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, maybe kind of slowing it down a little bit, but you were kind of saying uh, you got your first computer at 13. Um, and I kind of remember getting like, or using my first digital camera around the same age. Uh, and it was like a Sony with a floppy disk in the side. And it was kind of this big. <laughs> uh, and I think you could only take kind of 10 photos uh, on it. And it was like borrowed from someone's mum that worked at a school. Um, and I remember getting that photo. Like I, I can remember the photo still. It was at a skate park and it was my friend riding a bike and uh, someone sending it to me on uh, kind of MSN. It probably took about 20 minutes to send one, one image from that camera. But um, I guess you remember that kind of excitement of getting that first computer when you were 13. And then a yeah. slightly another question on, to add on to that, but and do you remember using your first digital camera 
and kind of that transition from film and how was that exciting for you as well? Yeah. So first of all, the, the computer, um, this was like the late seventies. So, uh, Commodore pet had come out and it was like the first consumer computer. And I, I remember nagging my parents for, to get one and they said, why do you want one? What did, what did they even do? And I'm not sure I knew, um, but we didn't get one and we ended up getting something called a Tandy TRS 80, which was actually a slightly more serious computer. And that was great because it, it, it gave me this path through to writing commercial software. Um, but, but that was incredible and it kind of dominated my teenagers and even though I didn't enjoy school I had this maths teacher who kind of spotted this technology or computer programming ability in me and encouraged me and um and, th and that was a great um you know boost uh camera yeah I it was 1999 I bought this Sony Cybershot digital camera it was a two megapixel camera um had uh, these proprietary memory stick things in it. Um, I remember going to Legoland with my two kids at the time uh, and took some pictures and they were just amazing. Although one, one, uh, one thing that I remember was I took pictures, you know, all around Legoland with the kids and there's dragons in the background and things. And I'd, I'd been working with a, I'd selected a pro lab that we wanted as a, as a strategic partner because we knew nothing about photography and, and chemistry and things like that. So this company had agreed to help us for a share of revenue, uh, for a share of equity, sorry. And uh, I'd, I'd said I wanted to use one of their Fuji print machines for a day just to do some hacking. And, and you know, the, Fuji kept telling us, you can't, you can't send JPEGs to these things. It's, it's like analog only. And I thought, Hmm, I'm not, I'm not sure that's true. So I, I remember kind of decon putting Wireshark on uh, one of the cables between the scan desk and the printer and, and sending JPEGs or sending scanned images and seeing what happened. And I found JPEGs that were being sent across. Um, so I managed to kind of hack the system so that I could inject my own JPEGs in and print them. And I, and for some reason, they didn't come out immediately. And the lady at this ProLab said, look, we'll get the prints and um, we'll let you know when they're ready. And she phoned me up and she said, oh, there's a problem with quality. Like, they, they've come out really pixelated, really blocky. And I, I said, oh, that's a shame. And I came over and it was basically pictures of Lego. So uh, she just thought that, uh, that, that something had screwed up in the uh, printing process because I'd been hacking away at this thing. But yeah, the camera was amazing. It's quite low, you know, I used it on its very low quality setting because memory chips were so expensive. Um, but they were just so bright and vibrant and so much better than, you know, the roll film camera I had. And, and when you saw them printed on like proper photographic paper, they were amazing. And, and part, of the, part of my passion about this at the beginning of Photobox was... Um, because you only printed what you wanted to print, not the whole roll, it was cheaper. And the quality was miles better. And we kind of just had to let people know this. It wasn't, it wasn't like this was an inferior product. It was a better product. Um, so yeah, I was keen to spread the nice. word. Um, do you still print out photos now using your service? You, you're probably going to say I, yes. I do for my mother-in-law. <laughs> she, she wants to get pictures and we, we upload them and order them. But I don't for myself. We... You know, we uh, we do do photo books every so often, um, although they tend to be tied to holidays, and we haven't done one of those in a while. Uh, but yeah, for, and and I still get. Um, I used to do calendars at Christmas, and I haven't. I didn't want to do one for the last couple of Christmases, but um, they're always. Was popular. that? Uh, I was listening to the Secret Leaders podcast yesterday, and you mentioned about the uh, naked podcasts in Germany. Is that the kind of pod is that the kind of calendar you're doing, or? Is it? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so one of the things is it not? not so, so much. Yeah, yeah, we always struggled with um, what do we do when people send in, uh, you know, private photos that they think that no human being is seeing. <laughs> um, it, it got a bit tricky in the early days of Photobox because it tended to be my friends and family that were coming oh, in no. to help us and pack the photos, <laughs> and I just didn't want things to get out of control. And also, we had some. Um, partners at the time you know like uh just brands that wouldn't want 
there to be any any mm. scandal at all. So we had this like no nudity policy, just simple, you know, like if you upload this, we'll refund you and tell you, sorry, you mm-hmm. can't do that here. Um, but when we, you know, started operating all across Europe, we found out that you know every country has their own idea of what's acceptable <laughs> content. And, uh, Very good. Uh, and and Germany had quite you know quite a few uh, uh, variances from the UK. But but I I do remember I vaguely remember that story. I think we'd printed a calendar for somebody that had. Um, you know, very tasteful uh, private <laughs> nude collection. But the worst thing was we'd accidentally <laughs> mispacked it and sent it to one of our investors. <laughs> <laughs> <my life>. <laughs> Brilliant. Graham, um, so we're talking, I think that's interesting going back to that very first, and I think Peter mentioned a floppy disk. I mean, that is that is quite new to me. But I wanted to, <laughs> but I wanted to understand the transition and your opinion on the transition from very traditional print to now more digital. Because um, I, I did an apprenticeship yeah. in uh, digital marketing, but there was also a print procurement agency there as well. And I'd be interested to understand that transition because nowadays, well, for me, it's very much online. Um, I have done... Uh, picture books and that but how is it changing where is it going photography uh, so i guess or, or it could be a bit. so i generally. guess when i so i think of it traditional let's go in the basis of so i guess flies for business business related so flies and all that sort of thing compared to digital online marketing how would you say that transition um from here i'm not sure i mean i you know we were lucky in that at the time at the time I created Photobox, this was a, a business model that was well established and had already been successful for a hundred years. It just hadn't gone digital. So there was effectively zero risk in the business model itself. Our risk was about execution and competition and things like that. Um, and there are some businesses that still thrive by being more analog, um, but you know, digital is, is, is the way to go. You know, one of my sons is um, going to buy himself a, a vinyl turntable right. soon. So, you know, everything kind of goes back to nostalgia eventually, but not, not as mainstream. It's, yeah. um, you know, it's so convenient to be able to stream music online or um, reach customers online or, um, you know, I learned, I learned a lot in the later years of Photobox about performance marketing and, uh, how we right. could really fine tune Facebook and Instagram campaign to reach very specific people. And, um, you know, that, that, that ability is amazing. It's a whole other world mm. of complexity, but it's, it's very powerful. Um, and yeah, obviously I'm a big fan of analog yeah. things turning digital and staying digital. Are there any emerging technologies, Graham, that particularly excite you? Um, and then are there any regions of the world that excite you as far as you know the new new frontiers i know it's quite of a gen- general question but um is there anything out there that lights you up currently um and that your any trends that you're seeing that are going to grow for years to come so you know i you probably got the sense i'm a i'm a generalist i i like solving problems i like doing a bit of sales and finance and marketing and technology but i'm not deep in the tech um i'm I'm certainly not a kind of ai or machine learning expert uh, although i recognize its power for some types of problems uh, not for everything um i guess trends i in my personal life i'm really 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 interested in esg activity environmental uh, sustainability and governance uh, projects um, and businesses that conform to esg ideals and you know we all have big challenges in the next few years to um, make sure that we collectively reduce carbon emissions and leave the planet in a better place than we found it Um, and i think if i were to look at the technologies um, associated with that well obviously cleaner um, cheaper forms of clean energy that can be rolled out at scale i think battery technology is a really key thing to unlocking um, efficient transportation because you know electric or batteries as they stand at the moment are can't compete with carbon fuels and um, they're getting there but they're they're, you know there's no way that we're going to be flying on a commercial flight anytime soon that's uh, run by batteries so 
Um, I, I think that would be a piece of technology. And I, I do what read industry battery news quite a lot, looking for that those early signs of a breakthrough. Um, uh, but yeah, I think those are the things that I, I tend to read about these days. And are there any um, international markets that you, uh, you, you see that are going to be growing um, or that particularly interest you outside the UK or are you more UK focused as far as your interests in general? I've had my go on merry-go-round a couple of times now. I've I've had Photobox. I had a um, a supply chain tech company I worked with for a couple of years um, that uh, we tidied up and sold last year. Um, these days, I'm doing advisory, and uh, I guess my focus is closer to home. I, I tend to work with UK businesses. They're, they're often UK businesses that want to increase their footprint overseas, but um, but it's very much uh, UK based, and uh, I, I'm I'm happy to be not on Eurostar and not on planes all the time. Yeah. So I uh, think this pandemic has really, really helped prove that actually you can do business over Zoom or whatever. Yeah, I, actually, I I haven't got Zoom fatigue. I know so many people have. Uh, my wife is ready to kind of kick the screen in the next time someone suggests it, but. I'm fine. I think this it's is a great way of, way of doing time business. as well. I remember going to meetings before and you do an hour there. Uh, by the time you find the coffee shop, then it's a couple of hours there, then an hour back. It's mostly half your day already done. Whereas you can jump on Zoom, talk for half an hour, an hour about everything you need to, and then you're back to where you are. I think it has worked really well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a hybrid is the way forward. I mean, there are, there are 90% of my meetings yeah. are far more efficient in this format um yeah then absolutely. there are those times when you just want to get together yeah. with people and thrash something through and be no, absolutely creative absolutely and, and so where does the no next uh few years what's the plans moving forward for you what do you want to do um what are the plans so like i said i i i'm i don't have this kind of burning business ambition now i'm, I'm lucky enough not to have to need one i i do enjoy advisory work and non-exec work i I like helping other companies. Um, I like unlocking problems that they're finding it difficult to solve themselves. Um, but generally it's, um, you know, I, I think I said it, I, I, I like to leave things better than I found them, whether it's uh, yeah, a business problem uh, that I'm diving into or uh, a kitchen I'm cooking in or whatever. You just, you like to leave things in a tidier state than you found it. And and I think it's easy to do those things close to home, you know, with with uh, people you talk to and businesses you help, and um, you know, some philanthropic philanthropic projects. But it's really difficult to do that on a kind of lifetime scale. Um, and if I'm if I want to try and contribute towards society or uh, climate or anything like that, being better than I found it. Um, well, first of all, there's no way myself I'm going to do that, but I'm really going to have to knuckle down over the next couple of decades to um, try and have some impact if if I want to do things like that, and I do. So, uh, and do I you think, think more, um, that, more that entrepreneurs level. should uh, this this topic of ESG? Um, do you think that entrepreneurs have a social and environmental responsibility? Can you comment about that at all? Uh, I think a lot of entrepreneurs do do they 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 recognize that um they work really hard they take a lot of risk a lot fail but if they do succeed they effectively have these windfall gains and a position of influence and a lot of them realize that they can use the gains and the influence to make things a bit better around them um but it's their personal choice you you know i've also I mentioned that I'm I'm actually pro tax, and at the start of this whole pandemic, I was reflecting that uh, for many people, life had suddenly become much much harder. And yet, for people who had some wealth, their lives were largely unaffected, and and that felt really unfair. Uh, so I started lobbying with a few other people for a wealth tax. Um, about a year ago and we're making some progress but i spoke to a lot of high net high net worths and a few ultra high net worths and 80 percent of them were very negative on it and um you know had some valid arguments as to why they didn't want it but uh generally 
uh, everybody perceives tax as a bad thing that should be avoided at all legal costs. And uh, and I think that's a problem. I think tax, wealth taxes, well, all taxes need to be reframed as a way of people who can afford to contributing to making society better and fairer. And, um, you know, the question is, like, say you had a million quid sitting in the bank. Uh, it, can you use that million quid to do good? Or could that, could that be put into education or infrastructure or healthcare to make it life better for the people around you? And, and at the moment, it's a choice, right? You, people choose to retain wealth or distribute it. Um, but I, I, I kind of want to help influence people on the benefits of mm. um, being That's really interesting. I think the, um, I mean, okay, so speaking from uh, my business, Flexi, uh, you know, we, we have an ESG mandate and it's not popular for every, all of our investors we're speaking to, but we're, the article, we're baked into the articles, we're putting 1% of our, uh, you know, turnover, not profit, turnover, because I think that's a, an easier thing to measure um, into ESG um, projects. And I, I personally believe that actually as entrepreneurs, uh, we do have a responsibility. And I think um, your, the, the, this fair distribution of the profits or fair distribution of wealth, if, if that's even possible, and to kind of mitigate any predatory profits, um, which really kind of just serve the, the you know, the, the, high, the, I guess, echelons of society. Um, so I, I do like the idea of, I mean, tax, you only have to go to Africa. Uh, I'm actually, I've got a, um, a trip planned for Somalia um, in a couple of weeks. You know, you only need to go to those places um, and realize actually that if you don't have tax, you know, people really suffer. So it's just finding this balance, isn't it? Because in the other debate too, just so I know we're kind of getting close on time, but um, I wrote to a couple of MPs recently about um, protecting the SEIS and EIS and actually make it even more attractive because you know, as an entrepreneur, I'm looking to create jobs. I really believe that I can create jobs and I, I am creating jobs. Um, and so, you know, in these weird times, you know, we, we need investment from folks that have, you know, have a bit of disposable income to invest in, in companies. So, but I hear that the government might actually scrap the SEIS and the EIS campaign, or maybe, maybe it's just hearsay, but I can see the benefit of that. So. Well, I yeah, I hope I hope they don't. I I mean, we we benefited from EIS at the beginning, and it was definitely helpful in attracting in investors. I also benefited from Entrepreneurs Relief, and that was nice. It didn't need to be as generous as it was, but it was it was definitely felt like it was fair given the toil and risk that I took. Um, so I'm very much in favour of those two things remaining, um, but. Uh, on the other hand, like I said, if people receive large windfall um, profits from their efforts, then they should also be encouraged to contribute more to society and not just hoard money because wealth begets wealth and uh, often just gets into this cycle of uh, being very abstract. Yeah, and actually for our younger listeners out there, SEIS um, is where an investor can basically get 50% back of what they put in against their taxes and the EIS is 30%. So I know there's probably a lot of our listeners that probably aren't familiar with those, but it just, it helps uh, startups actually get going um, and um, the investors themselves, it just helps mitigate their risk going in. So that's what that's about. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I'm actually looking to do that hopefully soon as well, but yeah, I think it's a great scheme. And also in terms of the ESG thing, um, for those that maybe are at the very small stage of starting their businesses, ways instead of maybe contributing like easy ways of, trying to help contribute in your own ways, for example, trying to reduce your plastic and your carbon footprint, all those different ways that maybe something that I've been trying to do um, to help reduce and all that sort of thing. Um, but there's huge amounts of factors and I think it's a great um, effort um, with all the ESG factors that we can uh, contribute. So anyway, I think we are slowly running out of time, but at the beginning, James briefly asked about that bit of advice, um, the one bit of advice you'd like to leave Alyssa. So I'm going to jump right back to the end. And could you give us that one piece of advice to our listeners before we wrap up? Um, so I, I, I think it's in two parts. I think it's look after yourself and talk more to other people. So look after yourself can encompass, get more sleep and get more exercise and have a good diet. Um, 
but you know look after your own physical and mental health because if you're not in great shape you're never going to um, have that resilience to to make it through the entrepreneurial journey and like i said talk to, talk to people more um to get out of your own bubble um share your problems and your advice with others and um i've i found that enormously rewarding but it took me a while to find the time to and do um if you were to um have a coffee with anyone um who who would it be oh gosh if you ask me in the it's a fact there would be lots of people <laughs> i'd nominate they'd probably be rich successful business people who uh who had want to either give me advice or money um these days i don't know i'm not very uh i can't think of a single famous person that i would want to learn something from to be honest i think actually i probably want to meet <laughs> boris for a coffee and say what were you thinking uh, and it's not that i i disrespect the um the, the the democracy of a brexit vote i just think that um i'd probably want to understand better what were we trying to achieve as a country by by doing brexit and i i feel there would be more efficient and less risky ways to get there um, than what we've done it's it feels like you're in a town that wants to have a new motorway built to get people there. So the first thing you do is set fire to all the A roads. Um, that's not really a good strategy. And, and also, you know, whether, whether Brexit is about sovereignty or about um, displacing London as the kind of funnel of all wealth in the UK, I just still think there are better ways to get that done than, than cutting ties with our largest uh, trading partner. So I, I, I do think Boris is, um, you know, an interesting character and he does some things right, but I think he's the architect of this and he pushed it through and, and, uh, I'd love to know what he honestly, privately believed. It's actually funny. So on the day of the Brexit vote, um, I was commuting into London and I was walking across London bridge with a, with a city guy, you know, a veteran city guy. And he was in like, it was almost like buyer's remorse. He was shocked. So he voted for Brexit. But he said, I never thought it was going to go through. And then he was like shocked. And I think the weight of what had happened <laughs> was settling on him thinking, holy shit, I made the wrong decision. Um, and that was just really, and it was just like this, this euphoria, this ignorant euphoria. Um, you know, so, you know, it's just kind of an interesting one, isn't it? Um, so books, what's your favorite? Would you recommend a book? If you mentioned the book on sleep at the beginning, would that be what you would put forward as a... Um... Actually, I found that very, I found that very interesting. It's, uh, I think it's called Why We Sleep. It's okay. by Matthew somebody. Can't remember. Uh, you have to go in the show notes. Um, what have I got? Uh, so one is The Lean Startup. Um, it's a bit of a dry read. It's not the best written book, but it is incredibly useful. Um, I think uh, at the beginning of any entrepreneurial journey, a lot of people feel like they've figured it all out. They know exactly what to do and they craft in exact detail what they're going to build. Um, and and 99% of the time, those assumptions are wrong. And what the Lean Startup teaches you is that um, you, you work in very, very small cycles of build, test, learn and validate your each of your hypotheses. Um, and honestly, you will save a ton of time and money if you follow the principles of that book. So that's definitely worth reading. And then on the uh, on the ESG side, a book I read during lockdown okay. last year was Donut Economics by Sophie Raworth. Uh, is it Sophie or her sister? I can't remember. Um, one of the Raworth girls. And that's really interesting. It just teaches you that the economic model we're following at the moment is uh, is not wrong, but it doesn't include uh, the the impact on the planet and uh, the impact on people. And it just teaches you those principles, Harry, that you were talking about. That you know, when you're building a business, you have to consider all the stakeholders, not just the shareholders, but your customers, your employees, mm -hmm. your local community, and the planet itself, and consider the impact you're having on all of those. So that's a really good read. Um, and then one I'm reading at the moment, I'm actually listening to on, on Audible okay. when I run, is Shoe Dog, which um, is about Phil Knight, the guy who created Nike. And I just love it. It's such a great book, great story, so well told. Uh, it's, it's a mashup of entrepreneurialism, 
um, Japan, which I have a big relationship with, Pacific Northwest, um, it's and, and running. So it's uh, awesome. and it's just fantastic. A great book. So the only thing I would say is, if it, if it, is there anything um, that you would like to promote, any social handles or anything that um, you want to direct our listeners to, uh, whether it's a cause or whether it's you know your own business um, ventures, anything uh, at all, and how how to find you or the, or, or or it. Uh, so I, I have a pretty low profile on social media. I, I guess you can, if you're clever, you can dig me out on LinkedIn. Uh, you have to know my email address. Uh, but I, um, no, I, I'm, I'm kind of low profile and I'm not promoting any personal business at the moment. What I would say is my wife and I both uh, work for separate food waste charities. She works for the Felix Project, uh, which does amazing work recovering food from um, restaurants and catering companies and distributes it out to those who need it. And I work on for a spin-off um, called Refitorio Felix that feeds homeless people in, in West London. Um, and uh, yeah, if anybody's interested to have a look at either of those two organizations or any other food waste charity uh, like Olio or uh, um, uh, and uh, yeah, there are quite a few, but uh, have a look at those. Uh, they're always a good cause. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Rocket. I hope you found that episode with Graham really valuable and you've got some really amazing insights from hearing his story. Now, join us next week as we sit down with fellow podcaster, growth advisor and CEO of Strategy Sprints, Simon Severino. Of course, thank you to our sponsor, Flexi, who is the mecca for all your subscriptions where you can manage them from one single dashboard. They've got some amazing discovery subscriptions on their platform from fruit and meal kits to fish, cosmetics, coffee, jams, and more. Check us out on social media at We Are Rocket Pod. Hit that subscribe button, and we'll see you next time.